Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle. And as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by author of the new book, We're Speaking, Hitha Palaku. Stay tuned. So once again, this show is built on sharing and listening, and I'm thankful to you for listening, sharing, subscribing, and following on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. A recurring theme here is that every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. And I'm grateful to have learned from many, many mentors who are directly in my life. But you know, I haven't really taken stock of those who I learned from indirectly and from afar. It's one thing to admire, and another to transcribe and reflect upon the actionable inspirations that a leader provides by their example. This is exactly what Hitha Palapu shares in her new book, We're Speaking, offering lessons about work, life, and resilience, drawing from Kamala Harris's norm-shattering ascent to Vice President of the United States. Hitha is an entrepreneur, an investor, the CEO of a pharmaceutical company she runs with her dad, and clearly a woman of multitudes as the daughter of immigrants raising two sons. She's long been a content creator, sharing her five smart reads, insights, and recommendations. And she wrote her terrific book, How to Pack, Travel Smart for Any Trip, back in 2017. She has a real talent for explaining. And in this new book, she thoughtfully describes practical vehicles and accelerators for a unique and personal empowerment. We caught up for a conversation and chatted about it all, Of course, first pausing to recognize our mutual finer appreciation for sports and Taco Bell. I'm excited to be here with an Eagles fan and a Taco Bell enthusiast. Uh, Thank you so much for having me and for such a wonderful introduction, because those are two great loves of my life. I have to tell you, you're not alone. I've had I think you're the fourth or fifth diehard Eagle fan to be on this show. And and now. Finally, another Taco Bell enthusiast. But I'm I'm a spicy tostada guy, but part of me died, I think, when the Mexican pizza actually went away. I'm not okay. I'm still not recovered. I agree. You're indeed a master explainer. And this is obvious with so many of the things you've done, whether it's how to pack or the five smart reads. And now, of course, with we're speaking, is this a joy that you've always had? Or, or something that you've cultivated out of either discovery or some even frustration as you've gone along? I think I have always found joy in helping people, but certainly I would say the latter really drove the sharing of the content because I am what I call an intellectual magpie. I am gravitated to a lot of different concepts and ideas, try them on for size, document them, share what works for me. And in that, I hope it helps someone else. So that's very much how 
being a master packer got started with my old lifestyle blog, Hitha on the go. And that's certainly how things shifted for five smart reads. I was already reading the news at a high level and I wanted people to discuss them with. So by creating these reads, it allowed me to share what I was already be sharing, but also identify a gap, which is people I think are bombarded by the same old, same old like headlines, whether you look on Twitter, whether you're watching television news, whether you're even picking up a paper, that there's a lot of underreported stories and a lot of great profiles on people that don't typically get profiled in more niche publications that I figured if I can lend my voice and amplify those stories, I was contributing meaningfully to what I think is a very noisy news cycle. I'm not a journalist. I'm just very curious. And I think that's kind of driven many of the things I did. And with We're Speaking, Vice President Harris has actually been a role model of mine for a very long time. And when I was just getting started in life sciences, there were no young women of color who were in senior leadership positions that I could look to or cultivate relationships with to be mentors or sponsors of mine. So being mentored from afar from a woman who was very much a first in all of the things she did, always among the youngest and who stepped and claimed her power and her voice and did things her way was so powerful for me to kind of figure out my path as a young pharmaceutical executive who was in a lot of rooms that most people never get to go in. And I never wanted to squander that opportunity. So, you know, while I wrote this book, this particular book very quickly for a long time, it feels like I had been writing this book because I had been following her career closely and using sort of these Kamala-isms that inspired me to craft my own career journey. And I wonder if the book in that way and sort of the other things you've done in the same process, is it this combination of both a sort of proclamation as well as a call to action in that way? In the doctor's office, there's always this you know, idea that like, look, I can tell you, you know, all of my thoughts and what to do, but I can't make you take the medicine. And in the same way uh, for you, having been in these spaces where, for the most part, these are spaces that typically are, you know, pale, male and stale. You know, this idea then of sort of making that declaration and at the same time, also this call to action. You know, I wonder how that's also played into when you've gone through some of these explaining situations. Yeah, I wish I was as intentional as you had made it sound. It really was. And I am not shy about admitting this. I got my job purely from nepotism. I am my father's daughter and I've worked with him. This is our second company together now, but I've also deeply benefited from incredible mentors and sponsors who believed in me and put me in rooms that I didn't necessarily felt like I belong. So there was this sense of, I owe it to myself to live up to what they see in me, but I also owe it to every other other who isn't pale, male or stale to show up in this room and to find the seats for them to sit as well. So that has been, I think, the underlying drive behind what I did, but it's not something that I was ever as aware of or intentional about up until very recently. You talk about in the book how you first came to know of Kamala Harris and the sort of epiphany in that February 2012 moment of seeing yourself in her in a position of power as a negotiator, almost perhaps the the strategy behind that and how you admired that. I'm curious if you remember what was going through your head or, or who you were the day before that. 
and maybe how perhaps the ingredients of your life maybe help accelerate that overall journey or that transformation or that sort of call to action even for yourself? So the day before that, I was touring a manufacturing facility. Um, It was one of my first site visits and I was accompanying um, the person we brought on to run manufacturing for the company who was also a rare woman in industry. And she really did take me under her wing, but had been nudging me of, I can train you to be an outstanding manufacturing person. Is that what you want? And at the time I was really grappling with, I know I could do this job and to learn from her would be to be able to do what she does would be a huge honor, but it's not what I want. I want to stay on the business side of things. I think that's where my best and highest uses, but I don't have someone like this person on the business side of things. And so I was kind of having a little crisis of conscious of going, what do I do next? Like what path do I go down? Because to commit to manufacturing, it's a commitment. You're going to say, I am going to work with this person for 10 to 15 years, supporting them to learn virtually everything I can about injectable manufacturing of largely cancer products at the time. And for as amazing as that opportunity was, I was like, this isn't right. This isn't right. So I was basically going, having spiraling and having a mini existential crisis of what am I meant to do? (laughs) And so I was very confused that day before and really feeling lost about what direction do I take my career? Because that's a wonderful opportunity. I just don't think it's the opportunity for me. I've always wondered if those magic moments of serendipity or leadership clarity come from being lost and come from being confused and the way that you sort of unspool what that really looks like. And thankfully for you, Kamala Harris and and that sort of epiphany must have happened to help you sort of unravel and unspool how being lost now translated into a direction and a purpose and and perhaps some even mastery of, of your of yourself and your own sort of career path. And life path for that matter. Yeah. And I think what it is too, is that it didn't nudge me into actually like this direction of running a pharmaceutical company, because I did leave pharma for some time to pursue building a tech company with my best friend, which did not work out. And serendipity brought me into pharma, but it gave me a confidence in that what's the worst that can happen. And if that worst case scenario is doable, and I would learn a lot from the journey, then there's no such thing as failure in that sense. I think there's just a failure to learn from every experience you have to grow and to progress internally, emotionally, mentally, that that's the true failure. So, and I think Vice President Harris very much modeled that for me in everything she has done from entering really hard campaigns from embarking on running for president from the way she has been as a senator and introduced a lot of important legislation that never came for a vote because of who the Senate majority leader was at the time and never letting that stopping her. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of life. You can't make a plan. It's never going to life is never going to work out as planned. But if you can roll with the punches, learn from every experience and approach every opportunity really with the growth mindset of a, what, what more do I have to learn here? And that's so amazing. I think you're going to be successful no matter what you pursue. 
The things that you talk about in the book when you were collecting these amazing stories and sharing them, and they're they're so additive, right? There's there's such building blocks of growth. And did you find any instances, even when thinking about Kamala Harris's journey or even some of the other contributors um, in the book, did you find any instances of of sacrifice and loss amongst the sort of treasures? of that, of those additive building blocks. And, and for that matter, did you recognize or discover any of those for yourself? Absolutely. I think, I think a lot about like what a Hitha and another multiverse is doing, like what the Hitha who decided to stay in tech when she started her career at Cisco systems versus going into pharma, the Hitha that never met her husband, the Hitha that chose not to have kids, the Hitha that chose not to ever come back to pharma, what would she be doing? And I don't think of it as sacrifices, more of a, just a curiosity of how are the other Hithas in the multiverse doing? And I hope they're happy. And I hope that would in their choices, they have found the happiness that I have found in mine. I will also say that I have a lot of privilege in my life that hasn't required me to make significant sacrifices, certainly not like the ones my parents made when they first came to this country or my aunt and uncle made when they first came to this country where, you know, the amount of racism and discrimination, both micro and macro they faced was significant that my father really reached the ceiling at a company rather quickly. And in order for him to progress in his career, it usually meant to move for us, which I've always thought of as an adventure. And my mom, I credit that with her. She and I were like, she always just was saying, where can we move to next? And where can we experience living? And what can we do there? That it was such a wonderful sense of adventure. I never viewed it as a sacrifice. I think in seeing what my parents hearing their stories of what they endured because they chose to wait to have children until my father finished his PhD to afford a sense of security that they just didn't have pre-PhD graduation was an intentional choice for them that has allowed me to not necessarily experience the sacrifices that they had made when they first came to this country, but they were always very careful to communicate just the privilege I do have, how life was different for them not as a, you should be so grateful, but as a, listen, the country still hasn't changed that much. You are going to have to deal with some level of this. So we want to prepare you for it, but we also want you to recognize how fortunate you are compared to so many in this world. So when we ask you to put your dish in the dishwasher, like stop sending Cinderella, Cinderella. <laughs> well, it always comes back to Cinderella and into the multiverse. I, I, I can't wait to, to see the hit the multiverse movie. That That's a good one. <laughs> Another thing I loved uh, about the book was the thought of creating unicorn space. I mean, that, that was uh, really something. Have you found that there is an importance to actually sharing what that space is in order to, in some ways, have the licensure to actually claim it, especially, or, or do you think that there's some value to, in some ways, the intimacy or the privacy of what that concept really is? I think a little bit of both. And I think it depends on who you are. So for me, because so much of my life is shared online as not as a roadmap for anybody, but to just share, this is what's working for me. And if this speaks for you, give it a try. And if it doesn't speak to you, don't listen to me. It's all good. So in sharing the romance novels that I'm reading or the needlepoint projects I'm stitching, there is no 
I don't feel the need to be overly protective about it. It's certainly not, I'm not selling my needlepoint finished canvases to people. They're sitting in a box in my closet and one day I will do something with them. You know, being an author is very much, you put a lot out. It is a pleasure for me to share the books I'm reading, but I don't have bandwidth to have like a book club with my community in this chapter of my life. And that's okay. Maybe one day I will, and maybe one day I won't. So, but if I can at least share these books and get them in other people's hands and hopefully inspire them to talk about it and share it with their friends, that's more than enough for me. And in some ways, being able to say, hey, look, this part of my life, sharing it as this unicorn space is vital, in fact, to promoting the rest of my life. And have you found, by the way, that there are some Kamala-isms that you admire that haven't yet made it to becoming Hitta-isms yet? (laughs) Um, I couldn't tell you the last time I cooked a meal. Um, So I do miss, like, I would love to be the person who does a Sunday night dinner or even a Friday night dinner um, one day maybe in 2022, maybe later. So that's something I haven't quite adopted. I do miss cooking. I just haven't been able to create the space for it in this chapter. And our whole family lives on like daily harvest and little spoon plates. And that's okay. This book is probably the first time that I am opening as much as I am about my family and my own life experience in a way Vice President Harris had to do in her first district attorney race. So this is... um, that is very vulnerable. So it's new to me, but I also, I'm lucky that I think I've have cultivated a thick enough skin and obviously being an entrepreneur and having been rejected a million times in pitches and also being a mother of young children and having my children just reject me every single day. Well, you know, and, and there's a fair amount in the book about Doug and, and Kamala Harris's family. Have you found or noted any surprises along the way in reflecting upon now sort of how your husband and your sons kind of are are part of this entire journey for you. I feel like I need to write a second book called We're Supporting the Life Lessons of Doug Emhoff because (laughs) for as much as we're creating books and content for women to step into their power, until men are willing to share that power, we're not going to have the seismic change. And it has to be from both parties. Mm. So I will say I'm very lucky to be married to someone who shares many of the same qualities as Doug, who has taken a pause from his career. And, you know, our boys see mommy writing books and having this incredible career as much as they see daddy taking them and picking them up from school, doing homework with them and leading at home. And so, and we share that and there are different chapters for each of us. You know, I, I've really missed my children this year. I've been holed up writing this book or negotiating a deal and now marketing this book. So it's, it's, it's been a lot, but that my children will remember this kind of phase, at least our older son will, our younger son will see. (laughs) He's two. I don't know what he actually understands as a two-year-old, but I suspect it's more than I think. I was going to say probably more than you think. So that he's being exposed to as fair and equitable of a household that we're capable of having, but also us being very connected, very much each other's biggest supporters. So I interviewed E. Brodsky, who wrote the book Fair Play for this book. Mm. Fair Play as a system really did, I think, offer us a structure and what we were casually doing in our marriage, but this has certainly helped. 
it offered us like language and tools that we were able to do for that as well that I'm very grateful for. So what I think our boys will see is that there is no such thing as this is mommy's job or this is daddy's job. This is both my parents contribute to the household. Both my parents have jobs and this is just how it is. And so if I can raise a couple little Srinar Simmons and who modeled after Doug Emhoff's, I would be very happy to. And I hope we as parents do talk about what do we have to teach our boys, not just what we have to teach our girls. And, and in a way that sort of mentoring that happens from, you know, Doug and Kamala as the couple, as much as, you know, Kamala Harris becoming your sort of mentor from afar, when, when you've been reflecting on that mentorship um, in the book and, and you had such a deep connection with her story arc, you know, as an investor, as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, and now an author, do you have to um, share or is it is it important to share a tangible, almost an emotional connection to a leader to harness the lesson or motivation in yourself? Does it, by the way, also make you in turn a better mentor when you're mentoring others? I think empathy is like a deep part of how just who I am and how I operate. I recognize that might not be for everyone, but it was very important because my, how I felt about Kamala and how much she had like from afar mentored and supported me and given me sort of tools to succeed in my career and in my life. It was important for me to share that emotional quality to it because it was authentic to try to hold it closer to chest. I don't think that wouldn't have been interesting to me to read. And it wouldn't have, I think, made the book wouldn't have made sense that way. So for me, it worked. She leads with empathy. Mm. And it's something, this quality I've learned both from her as well as from both of my parents that gaining people's trust, understanding what they're focused on and what their priorities are and what their hopes and fears are, really taking the time to do that makes you a more effective leader. It makes you a more supportive coworker and colleague, and it it makes you a better friend. So we have to take our time to get to that. And I think it also comes with a lot of humility. So does that empathy and that humility, do you think that that those are integral parts in some way to, to sort of empowerment and owning your story and embracing it. And for that matter, kind of developing that combination you write about, which is of the warmth and authoritative leader figure. I absolutely do. And I think it's um, a big deviation of how leadership was viewed in the past as like very much strongman, machissimo, no emotion, or if it was emotion, it was anger and being bold and brash and loud. A woman cannot do that. A woman of color especially cannot behave that way in the workplace. We don't have that same flexibility to show up in that way. We have to show up softer, gentler, but with a steel rod in our spine and an iron fist under a velvet glove. And so I think it's also in learning that it's not just hiding strength, but embracing a new kind of strength. And feminine strength is very different than masculine strength. And I hope it's something as our kids grow up, that becomes normalized to them, that you can deeply care and still be a strong leader. And that's something I see in both 
President Biden, as well as Vice President Harris, about they lead with their with their losses. They lead with the fact that they have grieved very deeply. And that is important because all of us have faced loss. All of us have faced setbacks. It doesn't make us weak. It makes us human. You you mentioned the importance of routine in the book. What do your own routines say about you? Do you think they serve as sort of a a proxy for some of your own identity? I certainly think so. I, a simple action of just breathing and meditating first thing in the morning for me, it's not about how clear does, can I get my head, but it's that I'm just stopping and being intentional for just five minutes first thing in the morning while I'm still in bed to start my day. And that usually leads to when I do it, making the bed, which is that small kind of micro. I did this one thing and it sets the stage for a more productive day. And I think, you know, you have your routines that keep you healthy and sane. You should also have your routines, your unicorn space of things that give you pleasure. So my reading time every evening is non-negotiable. Even if it's just a page, I have to read something that I just find pure joy in. So I am reading romance novels and books about the real housewives. And it is my way of just turning my brain off indulging in something that I just enjoy. No, but, and, and do, do any of these routines in some ways, I've asked this to other people that, you know, tangibly speaking, other than our names, what necessarily on a day-to-day basis makes us South Asian Americans. And of course, deep breathing and meditation and pranayama are are a big part of our our heritage and culture. But are, are there any of the other things in your daily life that sort of like, Hey, these are clearly parts of my South Asian American identity. Absolutely. Um, so I, my friend Niti Narula, who is an incredible yoga instructor, she recorded this amazing 15 minute flow for me to do every morning where she also is talking about, you know, she's using the Sanskrit words for every posture and explaining the reasons behind it. And my younger son loves this little YouTube video of kids singing shlokas and it's animated and it's got a translation. And so I've really come to enjoy while I'm feeding him breakfast, watching these shlokas as well, because for the first time in my life, I understand what (laughs) is being said. And I said, this is a wonderful way to start the day. I think that's one practice we have. We certainly say it's been habit for me since I was a young kid, say my prayers every morning and night. And then I would say, Simple things like when my parents are around, being able to have, watch them and help them make idli and dosa and pasaretu and, you know, our traditional foods. I feel so much better when I'm eating, you know, traditional homemade Indian food than I do when I'm necessarily just ordering in these days. I'm always so uh, fascinated by narratives that have that intergenerational impact. And and clearly in writing about Kamala Harris's story and her journey, there, there's so much of that. How do you think Kamala Harris has, I mean, it's certainly obvious and, and so eloquently written in your book about how it's impacted you, but how do you think Kamala Harris's journey has helped your mom or dad in reflecting on their own multitudes? You know, I don't think they would have ever used the word multitudes to describe themselves until they had read this book. And, you know, sometimes it takes someone to tell you something about yourself, even though that's what Shamala said not to do, but to explore, to kind of reveal 
all of the things that they love and admire about you. And certainly I would not have my life if it wasn't for my parents, you know, biologically, but also I am what being their daughter is the greatest gift. It really is. And I am so deeply privileged that I get to spend so much time with them, not just through childhood, but even in adulthood, that they have been the most devoted Amama and Tatea to my kids. They have taught my husband and I how to be parents and modeled for us that, you know, life doesn't end at a certain age. And it's not about just retirement, that you can embrace being a hands-on grandparent and still pursue your interests and passions and do the things that bring you joy. So multitudes are what we all have, whether we see them for ourselves or where other people see them in us. And I think because my parents spent so much of their, you know, first decades in this country kind of in survival and then on a path to stability mode that they might've never pursued it intent with intention or try thought to reflect on it themselves And I also think that's a generational thing when you're a first generation immigrant to this country, that is a privilege we second generation kids do get. And so if that's what I can show my parents, reveal to them all the many things I see them as and how much I love them for it, it's an honor to do so. Well, I think so many are going to be celebrating their own multitudes and recognizing and really thanking you for sharing yours with with all of us. What a treat to to have a conversation with you, Hitta. Thank you so much for joining and, and I hope we get to chat with you again. Yes, me too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again, Hitta. We're Speaking is available everywhere now. And remember, there's a Kamala and Doug in everyone, so go run with it. And as the great Tim Riggins once said, let's go make some memories. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar. Hi, this is Suraj Kundakuri from Brown People We Know, and you can check out ruckusavenueradio.com for more information and for the latest on station programming and more.